Welcome to Libre Lounge, a podcast about free software, free culture, and all the other interesting aspects of user freedom. With Christopher Lemmer Weber and Serge Broklowski. Hey, Chris. Hey, Serge. This time we are lucky enough to be joined by Rory, a friend of mine from New York and one of the founders of the Cyper Collective. Welcome, Rory. Hey, thank you for having me. So, Cyper Collective, um, I like that it has a cat-like purr in the name, uh, but that doesn't tell me that much. Uh, what? So, could you introduce our audience to what is Cyper? Sure. So, we all know that computers run because of the little cats inside of them, right? Um, yep. So, the Cyper Collective is just a group of cat-friendly technologists that are looking to help people uh, learn more about these computers and how they work, and more importantly, how to stay secure on them. Um, I have our little mission statement that I'll quickly go through. Um, the Cyper Collective is a volunteer cybersecurity group that provides harm-reductive and accessible workshops and resources to folks who need them. Uh, we focus on personal growth and work against forces of technophobia, digital imperialism, and contagious paranoia by actively maintaining safer spaces. Um, we also foster a sense of community through regular open meetings and socials. That's That sounds great. And how did you get involved in it? Uh, so growing up, I was what you'd call a nerd. I played video games, built my own computer in high school, then figured, hey, I don't like having to pay for Windows. I'm going to play with Linux. Um, next thing you know, I, I don't know, I play with Raspberry Pis and do little programming in Python and stuff. But it was never my focus um, until much later when I found myself at Blue Stockings Bookstore, which is a bookstore and activist center in New York City. And in that context, meeting other people that have a similar passing interest, uh, but more pressingly, uh, new security concerns as activists or marginalized folks. And we kind of all just figured, let's learn as much as we can and start teaching other people. And uh, it's been about three years and we've been doing it since. Uh, thanks for the explanation. So I, I want to kind of go back and talk a little bit about what was so impressive to me about Cyper and what was so different from what I had have seen before. So I've been in the free software space since 1997. I've been to lug meetings. I've been to various computer programming group meetings. And uh, the approach that most people or most of these groups take is, we're going to present you with a solution and they'll present you that with that solution even before they know what your problem is. Mm -hmm. So you, you come into a, a space and uh, one of the first events I went to was an install fest and the solution to all my problems was to install uh, GNU Linux on my computer mm -hmm. and then we could work on all my other problems after that. And the approach that you take, and I mean you, both you and uh, the rest of the Cypher people, specifically Gray, is that you start by engaging the participants, the audience, and ask them about the, the, the specific things that they think about when they think about a topic or the concerns mm -hmm. that they have or their, or their personal stories of how, it, how the technology that we're talking about, but whether it be a, an actual piece of technology or some virtual technology like uh, Google or Facebook, how it, how it impacts them. And then you, you go into a little bit of background and how it works. And then you immediately re-engage everybody, the participants, and turn them into actual participants by creating a, uh, an environment where you collaborate on 
potential solutions to the initial problems or to new problems that have come up. And uh, you've talked about this as the holistic security approach. So maybe mm-hmm. you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, definitely. So we as a collective um, drew a lot of influence from the Tactical Tech Collective, an organization over in Germany. Um, and they put together this handbook for uh, cybersecurity educators working with human rights groups. Um, and basically, this handbook breaks down digital security and says, the technology is only about a third of what we're talking about here when we talk about cybersecurity. Um, equally as important is our physical security and our social and psychological security. And all of these things intersect in our individual context. Um, so our approach to cybersecurity education thing doesn't go from the outside in. It goes from the inside out. Uh, we want to hear where people are at. Uh, what they already know about their own security, what direction they're going in. And personally, I'm an educator. I'm a graduate student here in New York in psychology. And a lot of my personal influences come from thinkers like Paulo Freire that pose that education isn't just the simple top-down expert to novice flow of information, but rather it's a shared um, built-together experience. So yeah, I think challenging that idea of expertise is really important, particularly in workshops like these that are often dealing with people on the margins and have the least resources. So that's that's really interesting because you've brought up people who are activists or um, are human rights activists in in some way, or you know maybe in in some form of risk. But but how would you how would you approach those people in terms of? Um, you say that they have these needs is what you got you interested in it. So what are those needs? What kind of topics are you trying to address? What kind of things do they ask you about in general? Yeah, definitely. So I think a lot of the needs um, come from um, places of paranoia versus um, apathy. Uh, there's a beautiful little chart in the Holistic Handbook, I think everyone should check out, where when you're trying to improve your security, people often fall on that spectrum between total apathy um, total hopelessness and total paranoia to the point that they can't even function. Um, and really, in order to have an educational environment, you need to balance those two psychological factors and find that sweet spot where you can actually learn more about the threats without becoming paralyzed by them and learn how to do new things without feeling too pessimistic about it not being perfect. Um, so this kind of concept of incremental growth um, Particularly for things like encrypted messaging, if you say that to most people, uh, they'll think of Mr. Robot or um, Edward Snowden or something. But it can often be as simple and friendly as an app like Signal that just looks like any other texting app. So I, I want to go and talk a little bit about something that you mentioned just briefly when you were talking about the founding of Cyper, which was... Uh, queer spaces. And one of the things that I really admire about the work you do is that the audience that comes to your events is extremely diverse. Mm-hmm. And part of that is because uh, you hold these events in a library in Brooklyn, and mm-hmm. Brooklyn's a very diverse place. It's one of the few environments where I've seen wealthy white people, programming types, you know, geeky programmers, as well as people for whom, you know, Microsoft Word is. Uh, the height of technology, and they've <laughs> never used anything else, and are people who you know maybe struggling for for money, and where time is an extremely valuable resource because they're 
financially not so well off. And you specifically make a point in talking about marginalized groups and inclusion of marginalized groups. Mm-hmm. So maybe you can speak a little bit about, about you know, how your initial involvement has changed the way you were, or how it affected the way you view things and, and how you reach out to, to marginalized communities to, to be inclusive. Yeah, definitely. So I think um, coming from a space like that, um, blue stockings in particular, but any activist space, um, I think the most important thing that we bring to the workshops from those spaces is an understanding of power and a relationship of powerful versus powerful. We really keep that central to our workshops and how we think about these things, in particular about our own pedagogies and how we approach education. I think a lot of people struggle with this concept of the expert, um, and we're kind of in the camp of uh, kill the expert, uh, so to speak, of, you know, just because you know 90% of a topic uh, doesn't mean you can never listen to someone who only knows 30%. And to kind of use, I think this is the only context where I could use this analogy. If you want to compare it to BitTorrent protocol, just because someone has 90% of the file doesn't mean that it can ignore every peer that has less than that percent. Uh, Because we all have maybe different amounts, but we often have unique experiences and unique expertise uh, that we all benefit from sharing. So I think part of kind of creating a horizontal space is starting with the acknowledgement that everyone there has something to contribute um, and you don't really have the position to shut anyone out of it. That sounds really great. So I'm wondering then uh i mean so you've joined libri lounge which is a you know casual podcast about user freedom mm-hmm. and uh um you know we're we're not exclusively about uh free and open source software but obviously um that's a large component of uh what we're trying to do and uh my understanding is that you do make use of free and open source software mm-hmm. uh within cyper um so i'm wondering to what extent that ends up playing a role with the people that are coming in and and with your organization in general? Definitely. So yeah, we try to use um, and promote free and open alternatives as much as we can in Cyper. Um, However, part of meeting people where they're at is acknowledging, you know, people there aren't going to delete Facebook after learning about how bad Facebook is, right? Um, So kind of mitigating the risk and not sacrificing the good in favor of the perfect um, is a really important part of these discussions. If you're only up for incremental change, we'll tell you how to incrementally change things. Uh, but if you're up for a more radical change, then we'll definitely be there for the more radical, freedom-loving software out there. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things that's so interesting about the not only the way you run the these workshops, but also, for first of all, that you call them workshops and not talks, because that's exactly what mm-hmm. they are. They're not just... You know, someone sits uh, behind a podium, although, uh, or stands behind a podium, although, again, uh, well, I have seen you <laughs> and Gray both stand behind a podium. <laughs> Podiums but, are very convenient. <laughs> so. um, but the the vast variety of topics that you cover mm-hmm. is pretty amazing. So, you know, you, you did a talk, uh, or I'm sorry, a workshop mm-hmm. on just a really basic question, which is like, well, what is an ISP? And mm-hmm. I think a lot of people don't really know what that is. And then you've covered more advanced topics. So you covered um, VPNs, which you know is a fairly complicated topic to someone who may not, for example, know what an ISP mm-hmm. is. Um, and you did a really emotional workshop uh, that I attended on cyberbullying mm-hmm. and where you covered the technology, but you also covered the emotional, as you said, the, the, 
the human element of that and how and how important that was. And and you've you've done um, you've done workshops on Facebook and uh, the the concerns around social media, specifically Facebook, mm-hmm. but other just social media companies and, and Bitcoin and, and other topics. So. How do you how do you guys come up with these topics? Um, yeah, they mostly come from the people who already come to the events. So there's a bit of a catch-22 to it. But uh, we do try to react and be responsible to the communities that are actually coming out to our events. And again, this ranges from people who happen to be in the library on a Sunday uh, to people that are in a queer feminist bookstore on a Sunday. A lot of our events are on Sundays. But I think another aspect is... Um, Again, I have a background as an educator, and we really try to revolve workshops around problems and understandable common problems, because the problem-solving mechanic is very addictive once you get going, or very um, intriguing, um, that everyone faces these same problems um, of surveillance, for example, but everyone answers to it differently and are often not communicating with each other about how they're answering it. So just getting everyone talking about this thing they're already kind of thinking about is a good way to get things going. And then just as organizers, we really believe in having a focus on joy and kind of a pleasure-driven activism activism, um, where people don't want to go to the library to either be bored going through the history of GNU plus Linux, even though it's interesting, or they don't want to get depressed because of how hopeless everything is. Uh, they want to go meet some people and have an interesting discussion. So we try to honor um, our participants and what they're actually looking for when they come. Cool. So that's interesting to me in a way because sometimes, well, collaboration is is also a, a, a place where I think it can actually be difficult for many free software people, including myself. So, uh, um, you know, especially when you're you're looking at the use cases for some software and, and what, what assumptions we bring in, especially if I think about what happens whenever I start collaborating on a on a new project with someone. And for example, if money gets involved, mm. the first thing I want to do is open up uh, something like Ledger or BeanCount, which are like these hacker friendly command line accounting tools that I, I really like. Um, and, and, and in some ways, that kind of that makes it really exciting for me to be involved, but it, 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 I've, you know, unsurprisingly, I've noticed that it alienates, um, and limits who can participate, at least without a large amount of bootstrapping, you know, but then it also is demotivating for me if I'm not doing that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, there's, there's other choices we could even make, like, well, maybe we could use GNU Cash, which is a graphical, uh, um, accounting tool or something else, but, but I don't know, the, these, what, how do you respond to and deal with the, the different assumptions and preferences that people come into these scenarios with, you know, especially if they want to help somebody, but they've already been deep down the rabbit mm-hmm. hole themselves? Yeah. And I think it's just part of um, our nature to go down the path of least resistance. If we understand how to use a certain tool and we're very comfortable with it, we're going to really just think of using it first. Um, very much, uh, if you have a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail. And I think, you know, in our personal practice, that's fine, of course. Um, but it kind of gets to this issue again with the expert, where if you're in the position where you're the expert and you get to tell everyone what to do, uh, you start telling people, how about we start hitting nails? Um, and this is a nail and this is a nail. So, um, so this kind of idea of stopping 
um, and listening to what other people are already bringing, what they're comfortable with and kind of negotiating that space in between, I think is a really important first step. You know, there was one situation I'm not going to get too in details with, uh, but there was a um, similar cybersecurity workshop where these people put together um, just for the betterment of this community that um, is struggling in New York right now. And they went and they went through, this is how you set up PGP. This is how you set up your own server so that you can have a next cloud and so on and so forth. And it's like this great talk that I was really enjoying. Uh, but for the people it was targeted to, the first question after the presentation was, how do I do this if I don't own a computer or a phone? Um, I only use the library computer. That's all I can afford. And it kind of totally derailed because the people coming into the space were very well-intentioned, but ultimately they weren't considering uh, their audience and what they already uh, were bringing. That's a, that's a great story. It, it illustrates exactly the the problem that we in the free software community have around doing outreach, which is that even even when we're thinking about being more inclusive, we have a very limited idea of what inclusivity is, especially in, in regards to socioeconomic status. And socioeconomic status also then becomes a, a an unintentional placeholder for for other things like race. And so I guess my question is, knowing that and knowing and, and having attended your workshops, it has drastically changed the way I approach trying to do outreach. Um, and maybe you can speak to a little bit about that, uh, about how we in the free software community could be could be asking the right questions or, or running our events in a more inclusive way. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I really appreciate you saying that. Um, yeah, we've been doing these workshops for a long time, so it's always nice to hear. Um, something positive like that. Um, and yeah, in terms of how to kind of build this into our own practice, whether you're an educator or a developer, you know, there's that first step of stopping and considering totally different contexts from your own. How would someone who only has a public computer, um, and especially with issues, you know, where a wired society, this is global socioeconomic differences we're talking about at times. Um, so how might um, putting something into code um, or make, building something off of cryptocurrency affect someone in a very remote region without as much access. So I think trying to lower the barrier as much as possible. Um, we also have a big focus on accessibility in our group. And it's something that, ironically, it's similar to the process of building up security. It can feel really overwhelming because you can never be perfectly accessible. Uh, you can never accommodate everyone all the time. Um, but it's really just a process of improving on uh, what you've done. Um, you know, Cyper recently had an issue. Uh, it was pointed out to us that if someone who was hearing impaired wanted to attend our workshop, pardon the French, but they'd be shit out of luck because we don't have an interpreter. Uh, we have slides, but they aren't very descriptive. Yeah, that was something that was brought to us fairly recently and we're kind of working to improve on. So kind of approaching accessibility as um, other people approach security, just incremental improvements as much as you can. That that's that sounds good. Sometimes incremental improvements seem really hard, though, right? Like you mentioned, if you're going to move operate under the assumption that you know you're not that somebody might not delete Facebook even after realizing the problems that Facebook uh, entertains, mm -hmm. 
Um, you know, so, so, you know, I'm an activist in the, uh, uh, distributed decentralized social network space. And, uh, I think a lot of us in that space want to be able to help people. And I think that it's, it's pretty widely acknowledged that activists need to organize and that's a social mm-hmm. system. And so, you know, escaping Twitter and Facebook is very difficult, mm-hmm. right? I, I guess I have a twofold question. So the first part is, what can be done if somebody isn't going to be giving up Facebook? You know, can, how can you help somebody who, where you're even starting from that presumption? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and the second one is, uh, what can we do as, uh, activists and implementers and, you know, uh, instance hosters and, and so on in the federated social network world? What can we do to make things, uh, more accessible to people who need the work that mm-hmm. we're doing? Yeah, so I, that's a great question. It's definitely um, incrementalism can only take you too far, so far. And every now and then there needs to be kind of a subliminal moment of uh, greater change. I really like the analogy of boiling water, uh, that there is this, you know, incremental change of temperature, but then something has to happen. There has to be this kind of explosion of energy and it has to turn into steam. Uh, so I think <clears throat> kind of balancing those two things is really important. In terms of the Fediverse um, in particular, I think something that is often difficult for people in our workshops is just the onboarding process. Um, Once you have a Mastodon account, for example, you can more or less treat it like Twitter. um, And I don't think there's that many accessibility issues. In fact, it's better than Twitter in some respects with accessibility. But really, for Fediverse in particular, there is that onboarding issue of what website do you point someone to? What instance do they just go on? Just the biggest one? Do they need to understand what an instance is in order to join the Fediverse? What if they join one and want to move it? Um, so all these kind of practical questions, yeah, they kind of serve as that barrier between boiling and ste- uh, between water and steam that people can be so close to giving up Facebook, uh, but there's just a few features they need to do and they can't quite navigate on alternative uh, platforms. So Rory, you uh, and Cyper are part of the Electronic Frontier Alliance, which is a, a collection of groups under the FSF, or mm-hmm. sorry, the EFF, that does outreach. If somebody wanted to do something like Cyper, well, so first of all, I would, of course, I'm going to recommend everyone go to a Cyper meeting, especially if, if they're in uh, one of the five boroughs or, or uh, that, that part of New York, uh, New Jersey, or Connecticut. But if they want to do something like what you're doing, um, what are some good places to start? Uh, yeah, so there's a lot of great uh, ways to start getting involved. Um, I think in particular, uh, getting in touch with the EFF. Um, if you and maybe a couple other people are interested in starting your own workshops, they have uh, the Security Education Compendium at sec.eff.org. Um, it's a lot of pre-made modules that um, are very similar to the type of things we do in Cyper, kind of making it a fun activity. And yeah, I think um, if you start doing that, enjoying it, and enjoying that, uh, joining the EFA has also been really useful in connecting to um, other similar groups and um, helping you promote your events. It's always a little disheartening to have an event that uh, only a handful of people <laughs> show up to. But yeah, uh, did that answer your question? Yeah, that's great. So worry. We're nearing the end, but before before we leave, uh, I'm really interested if you can give any final words, insight, any advice or takeaways that you'd like our audience to hear. 
uh, especially the free and open source software community. I feel like at right now, um, we're at a time where we're really evaluating how we approach things, how we communicate, how we try to spread our ethics and also listen and so on. So, so what, what, if anything, would you like to say to, to our audience? Um, first of all, thank you for all your contributions. Um, I think it's an understated overlap um, of the free software movement and other uh, liberatory movements or liberatory technology movements. Um, it's really important that uh, these uh, open and distributed models um, often answer a lot of the same questions and concerns that people in um, activist spaces ha are struggling with. Uh, just in the more analog version of them. Um, you know, how do you deal with trust in an open space? Uh, for example, um, you know, do you just ban people, ban temporarily? Um, and these kind of questions that are very familiar in this uh, more technical space also apply to those spaces as well. So I think having more cross-pollination and more um, conversation with people on the margins and the needs that they have, um, I think... The work folks are doing is already so incredibly useful and powerful for those groups. Um, but kind of continuing the dialogue with them, I think, can offer a lot to both sides. All right. Well, thank you, Rory. Um, this has been a really great conversation. And I, I know that I've taken so much uh, inspiration from the work that uh, Cypher does and from you and Gray uh, in particular um, that... If anyone is able to attend one of your events, they should go to cyper.nyc, C-Y-P-U-R-R.nyc, and check out uh, what events you got you you have coming up and uh, try your best, try their best to attend. So for people who want to engage with us, uh, the best way is to follow us on the Fediverse. We're at um, at Libra Lounge at floss.social. You can join our IRC channel. We're, uh, I think, about almost 80 people strong. Uh, we're hash Libra Lounge on Freenode. You can email us, uh, podcast at LibraLounge.org. And, uh, of course, we'll have all of the, the links to the various things that Rory has talked about in our show notes. And I think that is it. Anything else, Chris or Rory, before we head out? Just thank you so much for having me. I was happy to be on. It was a real pleasure. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Rory. All right. Bye, everyone. See you next bye. time. You've been listening to Libre Lounge. You can find and subscribe to us at LibreLounge.org. This podcast is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. Our theme music is Bossa Nova by Joff, which is waved into the public domain under CC0 and which you can find on OpenGameArt.org. If you'd like to support Chris Weber's work on this and other user freedom projects, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash C-W-E-B-B-E-R. Thanks for listening. See you next time.